If you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll begin this morning by reading the text. You'll see there that I've entitled this uh, Walking in or Light and Darkness or Walking in the Light uh, Part 3. And this is the last kind of part of this, of going through this text. You'll see when I get to the end, I'm going to uh, do a little bit next week to kind of clean up a particular topic that is raised as we consider this text. But this will be the last time that we spend the whole morning in these, in these wonderful verses here in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. So let's read together, follow along as I read 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, we took a few weeks, if you'll remember, to think through a theological introduction to these verses. I hope you remember that I spent some time covering the doctrine of what we call the perseverance of the saints. And this doctrine indicates that those who are truly converted will indeed continue in fruitful obedience till the end. And then we also looked at the fact that that Doctrine hinges upon the necessity of another doctrine called regeneration. Because without God doing a miraculous work in the heart of the sinner, we would not be able to persevere in faithfulness. Think the metaphor of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. We abide in Christ and he has given us life so that we can obey. Without the life of Christ, without the new birth... We could never do one fruitful act of obedience. In fact, without regeneration, we could never even have faith to believe in Christ in the first place. And so here in our text, in 1 John chapter 1, we're talking about the obedient fruitfulness of those who walk in the light, as John puts it. And the apostle contrasts those who walk in the light with those who walk in darkness. And we have to understand that group, those who walk in darkness, as those who sit among the community of the saints, those who sit in churches. Remember, he uses the pronouns we and us and our. So it's those who are in the midst of those listening to this letter. And we have to see that these persons are those who came to identify with the people of God in some external and visible way but never came to be part of the people of God in an authentic, internal, spiritual way. Those who walk in darkness are the false Christians who sit in the pews of churches throughout the ages, 
yet who do not sit at the feet of Jesus as his true disciples. That's what walking in darkness refers to. And it's a deeply sobering reality that false believers exist. We take no delight in the fact that we probably could think of those who used to sit amongst us in churches but have departed from the faith. And we have to be humble to face the fact that this same sobering reality indeed could be true of any of us. Any of us could be false. Any of us could possibly turn to be the one who walks in darkness while sitting, seeking to fit in with those who walk in the light. When Paul addressed the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he warned them that after he departed from their midst, that fierce wolves would arise to seek to destroy the flock. But what is most striking about his warning there in Acts chapter 20 is from where he said those wolves would come. Listen as I read what he said to the spiritual leaders in Ephesus in Acts 20 verses 29 and 30. Paul said this to the elders. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. My friends, this is an incredible statement from the Apostle Paul. He might have handpicked these men as leaders in Ephesus. He likely would have taught them extensively in the doctrine of the church. He would have seen to it that they understand all the necessary qualifications to be involved in spiritual leadership in the local church. And yet he still knew that from among that group of leaders would come false Christians who would ravage the sheep of the congregation. And why would any other church or denomination or movement in the 21st century be different from that of Ephesus? In 2 Timothy, we read of another sobering reality spoken by the Apostle Paul. He was at the end of his life in ministry when he wrote 2 Timothy, and he had discipled many men, and he had ministered alongside many men for a long time, but there was one of them that he had to make a brief yet incredibly sorrowful statement about. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, we read of a man named Demas. This was possibly the Demas who was mentioned in the book of Philemon as one of Paul's fellow workers. That's Philemon 124. And possibly this is the Demas mentioned alongside with the gospel writer Luke in the book of Colossians. But here in 2 Timothy 4, 9, and 10, possibly after a lifetime of ministry alongside the Apostle Paul himself, we read this about the man named Demas. Paul said to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon because Demas, who is in love with this present world, has deserted me. Imagine the things that Demas saw Paul do. Imagine the spiritual victories he would have seen. Imagine the number of people he would have influenced himself for the sake of the gospel. But yet it turned out that he was false the whole time. He was actually in love with the things of the world. As Paul said in 1 first, in first Timothy, he was one of the ones who saw godliness as a mean to gain 
whether it be power or money or influence, and eventually he deserted Paul to live the rest of his days in search of empty treasures because he didn't find them in ministry. And then the most sobering example of departure from the faith in all of Scripture is the Apostle Judas. Judas walked with God in human flesh for years with Christ. Judas saw with his own eyes the miracles of Jesus. Judas himself was given given power to perform miracles. He would have preached the gospel of the kingdom to scores of people and likely would have seen people converted on account of his preaching. But yet Judas rejected Jesus in the end. Judas would not believe. His heart was the whole time a heart of stone. Judas was exposed to the greatest possible light that a human could be exposed to, and he still failed to see it. And if it was possible for Judas to walk in the grace of the light of God incarnate and for him to still remain hardened, then it is certainly possible for any of us to remain hardened as well. And John the Apostle Apostle knew that to be the case. That's why in his first letter, his second letter, his his third letter, we looked at it a few weeks ago, over and over and over again, he is like a broken record repeating this urgent plea to consider yourself, to realize that false conversion is not far removed from you. There are many in the congregation who are not true. Yet in all of his efforts to help false converts see that they're walking in darkness, we also see that John is also seeking to do something positive, not just help warn those who are false. He's also at the same time trying to encourage those who are true and to give them assurance that they indeed do walk in the light. And to be honest, that is my highest goal in all of what we discuss in this letter. I would have all of you who do walk in the light have a sense of certainty and confidence and assurance. Yes, we need to be introspective to a certain extent, but I want all of us to walk away with assurance, knowing indeed that we do walk in the light, because that's what Pastor John would have us to do. John makes it clear that that's his goal. He says in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And friends, I would have you know that you have eternal life for certain, with clarity, and with confidence. And so I want to continue discussing the nature of walking in light and walking in darkness so that we who believe we'll be able to discern for certain that we indeed walk in the light and not in darkness. And over the past few weeks, I've presented to you three characteristics that John gives in this text about those who walk in the light. First, we considered the fact that to walk in the light is to follow Christ. In your notes in the bulletin, I believe I have these written out for you. And we got this point from the fact that John says in verse 5 that he's repeating the message of who? Of Christ. And the closest thing that we find in the words of Jesus to what John is writing here is what we read in John 8 and verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. So following Christ is the opposite of walking in darkness, which means if we do the logic, following Christ is the same thing as walking in the light. If you walk in the light, you follow Christ. And then secondly, we observe the fact that to walk in the light is to be a walking miracle. John makes it clear in verses 5 and 6 that walking in the light is the same thing as claiming to have fellowship with God. That's no small claim. Who can make that claim? None of us on our own. It would take a miracle to be able to have fellowship with the light of God. And so only if we evidence the fact that we indeed are a walking miracle can we claim to walk in the light. One of those miracles is what we talked about last week. To walk in the light, thirdly, is to have fellowship with other Christians. And you remember as we looked at Psalm 133, we see that fellowship, unity, is itself a miracle. It comes down from God and runs on the beard of Aaron, down his robes. It comes down. And as the dew from Hermon is unlike the dew at the mountains of Zion in the wilderness, so it is a miracle that Christian fellowship occurs. And so we find assurance that we walk in the light when we evidence aspects of fellowship that are divine, that are supernatural, that are not merely earthly in nature. And then today, we move to the fourth characteristic of walking in the light that we find in this text. This fourth characteristic of walking in the light is very practical. It is possibly the most practical way that we can determine if we walk in the light or not. And more than that, this fourth characteristic of walking in the light is the clear opposite to what John refers to as walking in darkness. So as we learn about this final characteristic of walking in the light, we also learn about what it means to walk in darkness or to not walk in darkness. And it might even be the case that this last characteristic of walking in the light is the thing which provides the most practical and fundamental difference between those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. What really is different between them? Again, these are people who sit in the pew at church. They look the same. How do we tell the difference between the two? If we were to put forward on the stage here, on here on this side and this side, a person who walks in the light and a person who walks in the darkness, a representation of both of those types of people. And if we had the ability somehow to get inside the heart and mind, the thinking of these people and, and project it maybe on the screen behind us, then I think we would have a hard time, even at that level, figuring out the difference between the two of them. Here's why. It's possible that both of these persons would say in their heart of mind, fundamentally, that they believe in God. Both of them would say that. And it's possible and likely that both of these persons would say in their heart of mind that they believe that there are many evils in the world that are bad and should be changed. We have the same values. 
It's possible that both of these people would say in their heart and mind that they believe that the church is good and that it should have a, an important influence on the world and we should send out missionaries and we should help the poor. The church is important and we should put our time and energy into the church. It's possible that both of these persons would say in their heart and mind that they believe firmly that Jesus is the most important person to ever live and that his teachings should be followed. It's possible, likely, that both of these persons would say in their heart and mind that they believe that they are not perfect people and that they are, at least in some way, in need of God's help. They'd agree on all those things. So at this point in our evaluation of the person walking in the light and the person walking in the darkness, we're stuck. We don't know the difference. And this is, by the way, exactly what our enemy is seeking to do. He would have the false think at every point that they are the same as the true, and so deceive them. But I think if we were to ask both of these persons a certain practical and personal question, then I believe we would receive a a categorically different answer from each of them. And the certain question that I would like to ask them is at the heart of the characteristic of walking in the light that I want us to consider today. And this is the question that I would want to ask to these two individuals. What do you think about your sinfulness? What do you think about your own personal sinfulness? And I believe that if we teased that question down to its root, to its core, we would hear a very different answer from the churchgoer who walks in the light than we would from the churchgoer who walks in the darkness. And I think that's what John is driving at in this text as well. And for our purposes this morning, I would like to propose that the fourth characteristic of walking in the, in the light has to do with how these persons would answer that question differently. And I'd like to put it in terms of what the person who walks in the light would truly and authentically say about their own sinfulness. So the fourth characteristic of walking in the light in these verses is this, if you want to fill in the blank there. The fourth characteristic is that to walk in the light is to agree with God about your own sinfulness. To walk in the light is to agree with God about your own sinfulness. And I've worded it that way on purpose. You'll notice I'm saying that we must agree with God about our own sinfulness, not about the sinfulness of the world, not about the sinfulness of our city, or about the sinfulness of the guy next to you. Your own sinfulness. And you'll also notice that I use the word sinfulness instead of sin or sins. And that's deliberate because we have to see ourselves not merely as those who do certain sins every now and then, but that as a person we are thoroughly sinful. We, we give rise to sin from our heart. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, that, this last characteristic of walking in the light is really the opposite of everything that John says in this text about walking in the darkness. Notice what he says in these verses about those who walk in the darkness. Look at verses 6 and 7. John essentially says that those who walk in the darkness have no idea just how bad their sinfulness is. 
One commentator I read made the comment about these verses that these verses indicate that those who walk in darkness deny the fact that sin breaks fellowship with God. They essentially think, well, I can have fellowship with God and still be sinful. And then in verse 8, we read that if we deny that we have sinned, we're deceived and the truth isn't in us. And then in verse 10, John repeats the same idea and says that denying sin actually makes God a liar because God has said that we sin. And so if we deny it, we're saying, you're a liar, God. So that's why it's important for us to see that we need to agree with God on this issue. Especially there in that last thought, we see the fact that God has indeed made a pronouncement about human sinfulness and either we agree with him or we don't. If we agree with God about our personal sinfulness, then John says we are walking in the light. But if we do not agree with God about our personal sinfulness, we are walking in the darkness. And we could possibly even say that in one sense, it really is that simple, if you want to use that word. To walk in the light, we simply must agree with God about our sinfulness. And so for this morning, I want to try to zoom in on what it means for us to agree with God about our sinfulness. What does that mean? And as we do this, we'll be able to see clearly whether we walk in light or darkness. You'll either see that, oh yeah, I agree with God on that point and that point and that point, or you don't. So you'll see for yourself if you walk in the light or not. So what does it mean for us to agree with God about our sinfulness? Sinfulness, And I think John answers this question for us here in the text. I think in these few verses, we find three things that God thinks about our sinfulness. And we must agree with all of them. Not just one of them or two of them. All of them we agree with in order to qualify as those who walk in the light. If we fail to agree with God at any one of these three truths, then we reveal that we actually walk in the darkness and not in the light. So let's consider three defined truths, three divine truths concerning our own personal sinfulness. And the first one is this. The first divine truth concerning our own personal sinfulness is the fact that our sinfulness separates us from God. Our sinfulness separates us from God. And we get this point from what John says right here in these verses at the beginning in verses 5 and 6. That our sinfulness separates us from God. Look at verses 5 and 6. John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. And I didn't park on a really major theological truth in these verses earlier when we went through them. And it's because they really apply to this point more than any others. John makes a powerful doctrinal claim there in verse 5. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's an astonishing theological claim. This statement is powerful not only because it indicates that God is perfect and holy, but it is powerful because it implies most clearly to us that none of us are okay to be anywhere close to God. Because 
in him is no darkness at all. The metaphor of light and darkness that John uses in these verses is not different from how we see the idea of light and darkness used in other places in Scripture. Light refers to purity and truth. Darkness refers to wickedness and lies. Light refers to openness and to peace, while darkness refers to hiding and strife and contention. Light refers to moral perfection, whereas sin refers, or darkness refers to sin and to moral stain. And so when John says that in God is no darkness at all, he means to say that there is no impurity, no lie, there's nothing hidden, there's nothing in conflict, there's nothing but sheer moral perfection in God. And in comparison to God, everything else is dark. Here is what Scripture says about the perfect light of God. 1 Timothy 6, 15-16 He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then Job thirty-seven twenty-three: The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. We can't find him because he's in a category that we can't approach. And then we read in Isaiah 57, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. When I, not like I can do this, but when I want to make a house to dwell in, I go get materials and I make it like Children, I make 2,000, 2,500 square feet, maybe. That's suitable, a suitable place for me to live in. What's a suitable place for God to dwell, to inhabit? Eternity. He, he feels at home in eternity. Thus says the one who is high lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And we must also realize that even the metaphor of light can't contain God. It's just a convention to help us try to understand him. Because light is something that God, what? Made by speaking it into existence. Listen to what he said to Job in Job 45 verse 7. He said, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God made light and he made dark. So even the metaphor of light and darkness doesn't do him service. So as concerns power and purity and holiness and justice and light and perfection and all these ideas, we have to see that God is in a category all his own. I think that's what the metaphor is really trying to say to us. Just like there's light and not light, Polar opposites, there's God and there's not God. Those are the only two categories in all the universe. And we would hope that all sinful humanity should be able to rightly understand that we are not in the same category as God. But more than that, we as sinful humans need to realize not only that we aren't God, but we also must realize just how far away from God we are because of our sinfulness. There's a gulf fixed between God and us 
that we cannot even fathom. And that's because of our own sin. James says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You sin just one time and you're guilty of everything. Paul argues in Romans chapter 3 that none is righteous, no, not one. He says that our sin causes us to fall short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6 and verse 23, he says that the wages of sin is death. And so we must agree that our sinfulness has created this situation in which God dwells in unapproachable light. We can't approach him because we are sinful. We cannot have fellowship with him because we are sinful. We cannot bring ourselves before him without deserving his wrath because we are sinful. Do you remember the experience that Isaiah had before the throne of God in his vision in Isaiah chapter 6? He saw these perfect beings called the seraphim worshiping around God's throne. And God is of such a different category than these perfect seraphim that they had to do what as they worshiped him? They had six wings. Two of them were for mobility. Two of them were to cover their feet and two of them were to cover their face. They couldn't even look upon the light of this holy, holy, holy God. And so it was not surprising that Isaiah responded, Woe is me, I am lost. And perhaps it's no wonder that Isaiah became one of the most important men of God in all of history. Because he caught a glimpse of God's light and he could not, for the rest of his life, unsee it. He couldn't unsee how holy God is and how unholy he was. In other words, Isaiah agreed with God that his sinfulness separated him from God. There was a clear line of demarcation between him as the sinner and God as light. Now, I think that there are many who can agree that they are in some way separate from God. That God is greater, higher, more perfecter, however we want to say it. But the most important thing, which is not easy to realize, is the fact that the reason for our separation from God has to do with our own sin. We realize, it's not hard to realize that there's a God and I'm not him. But what is hard to realize is that the reason that that separation exists is because of me, personally. We tend to not want to be the problem. We want to have it be someone else's fault. That's our tendency. And if you find yourself thinking that that it is not actually your fault that you are thusly separated from God, then guess who it is that you're actually blaming? If you don't blame yourself, then ultimately you're blaming God for that separation. If it's not me, then it had to be someone else or some, some other circumstance. And ultimately that traces back to God. And how deeply troubling that would be to blame God for the separation between he and you. Well, that's actually what's going on in the heart and mind of the one who walks in darkness. 
They disagree with God that their sinfulness is the root cause for their separation from Him. They believe, rather, that since God made them the way they are, it's His fault. I can't help it, God, that I act the way I do. So essentially, they're blaming Him. Do you remember what Adam said to God when he was confronted in the garden for his sin? The woman... Whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam essentially said, yeah, God, I sinned. God, I sinned. But it's only because of the woman that you gave me that I did. Yes, I'm now ashamed and separated from you. But it's the woman's fault. And friends, we've been doing the same thing ever since. But for those who walk in the light. These ones are able to understand the fact that it is they and they alone who are the cause for their separation from God. They agree with the fact that their sinfulness has separated themselves from their maker. But then a second thing is true of those who agree with God about their sinfulness. Here's our second point. We must not only realize that our sinfulness has separated us from God... But we must also see that our sinfulness, secondly, necessitates a substitute. Our sinfulness necessitates a substitute. Makes a substitute necessary, we might say. Look with me at what the Apostle says in verse 7. He says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in just a few short statements there, John articulates the most mind-blowing reality in the whole universe. There's nothing more stunning than what we just read. I teach science to students on a daily basis. And I love it when I get to talk about the natural world in ways that completely blow their minds. How, how big the universe is, how small atoms are, the orderliness of physical motion, things like that. I love to see them captured by the beauty of what God has made, even if they don't recognize that he's made it. But there is nothing... Nothing that can captivate our minds like the glory of the fact that God has cleansed our sin by the means of the blood of his son. Nothing is more captivating than that. Remember, we just got finished talking about how our sinfulness separates us from God. And now we're talking about how we are not separated from God if we walk in the light. How can it be that we are sinful and have fellowship with God? This is a paradox. And the answer is in the glorious work of Christ on the cross. The answer is the gospel. The answer is in the fact that God did for sinners what they never could have done for themselves. And those who walk in the light agree with God that this divine gospel is their only hope in all the universe. 
Let me briefly fill out the truth that John is stating in just a few short words in these verses. He says there that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin in verse 7. And then secondly, in verse uh, 9, he says it is, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll start with that second statement. Did you catch the most shocking part of it? I hope you did. I hope it shocked you when you thought about it. Because John said that God is both faithful and just to forgive us. He said that it is a faithful thing and it is a just thing for God to forgive us. And to quote a modern idiom at this point, I would say, hold the phone or something like that. How could it ever be possible that it would be a manifestation of the faithfulness of God to forgive rebels? How could it be that God would be actually demonstrating his divine justice in forgiving those who have committed innumerable offenses against him? And John is not merely saying that God retains his faithfulness and justice while he forgives. He's saying that God demonstrates his faithfulness and justice in forgiving. By forgiving sinners, God puts his faithfulness and his justice on display. He evidences these things by forgiving us. In other words, God proves that he is faithful and God proves that he is just by forgiving sinners. And that is incredible. We can only untangle it by putting our doctrine to work. First, we see that God proves he is faithful by forgiving sinners because he promised he would do so. He promised he would do so. And so when he does it, he's proving his faithfulness. Jeremiah 31, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. It's a promise he made in Jeremiah 31. And there God is speaking to Israel about the new covenant that he would bring to her as a nation. What is not clear from that prophecy is the fact that God would first be bringing this new covenant to the church and then later would bring it specifically to Israel as a nation later. And as Jesus told the twelve in the upper room, he said his blood would bring into reality this new covenant. His blood on the cross specifically would bring into reality what he promised through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31. Jesus giving up his life on the cross 
was the fulfillment of God's promise to bring the new covenant to Israel and the world. And so we see that by sending his son to bring forgiveness by his precious blood, God was being faithful to his promise to forgive the iniquity of his people. So God is faithful to forgive sins. God proves he is a faithful covenant-keeping God by forgiving our sins by the death of his son. But we get to a problem there. Because how can a perfect God just forgive sin? In Exodus 34, 7, we read that God will by no means clear the guilty. He has a standard of perfection, and he must live up to that standard. John himself says that in God is no darkness at all in verse 5. So how can this holy and just and perfect God Just cast a blind eye at sin? Can he do that? Can he just pretend that we didn't commit our sins? Can he just decide to forget about them as if they didn't exist? And the answer is no. He cannot do that and remain a just God. He cannot merely overlook sin and remain just. God's justice requires that he punish every single sin to the fullness of what it deserves. Hebrews 2 and verse 2 says that every disobedience receives a just retribution. And so how can God remain faithful to his promise to forgive sin while also remain faithful to his justice and necessarily punish sin? He has to forgive in order to be faithful to his promise. And he has to punish in order to stay just. Well, the answer again is the gospel. The answer is in what Jesus actually did on the cross. You see, God did punish every sin that he forgave. He took out his punishment on the son instead of on the sinner. He crushed Christ for the sins of sinners so that he could be just to forgive them. That's the glory of the gospel. Think of it this way. Suppose you owed your bank some money and your friend heard about it and your friend being a kind and deep-pocketed friend decided to go to the bank without your knowledge and he paid off your loan. This analogy obviously breaks down, but hang with me because I'm just illustrating one particular point. Let's say that you came in an hour later to pay off your loan that your friend just paid off but you didn't know it and then the bank clerk being the just person that they are, went ahead and took your money anyway. You didn't know it had been paid, and so he just takes, oh, thank you for that, I'll I'll take the money. No, he would be crooked if he did that. That would be an unjust banker. In that instance, the only just thing would be for the banker to forgive your loan. It was all paid off. You would be just and right to receive forgiveness in that situation because it was already paid for. And so it is with the sins that Christ Jesus died for. God would be unjust to not forgive you. He would be unrighteous if he held them over you and demanded that you make amends for them. And the reason for this is because the blood of his son 
already paid the debt owed to God. In other words, the most just thing that God could do is forgive the sins for whom Christ died. If Jesus died for your sins, then God is right and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's how God is just. That's how God is faithful to forgive you of your sins. Now, to our point about walking in the light. We must conclude that those who walk in the light agree with God that their sinfulness necessitates this substitute. They concede to the fact that their effort can never save them. They give up all efforts to redeem themselves by means of their good works or their self-reformations. They surrender the war to God and they cry to him that unless he punish Christ for their sins, that they will necessarily incur his wrath. They essentially say, God, my only hope is that you crush Christ instead of me. That's how you agree with God that your sinfulness necessitates a substitute. And we might think at this point, why would a person in their right mind not Except this glorious exchange. Why would a person say, God, I'd rather you punish me with eternal hell than, 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 if, than I accept the offer you've given me in punishing your son instead? Why, why would someone ever not agree with that? Well, here's why. Because coming to that agreement requires that we come to agree with the first thing that we observe. You will only agree that your sinfulness necessitates a substitute if you first agree to, your, to the fact that your sinfulness separates you from God. You'll never get to that second step if you don't first get to the first one. In other words, if you don't see the hopeless condition that you are in because of your sinfulness, if you don't recognize that, then you will never agree to have Christ take your place you just won't see the need for it, and you won't be desperate enough to beg him for it. You won't be like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, who beat on his chest and cried afar off and begged God for his mercy. If you won't see your dreadful condition to be such that you must beg and plead for his mercy, then you will never do it. And the reason? It's too humbling. You won't stoop that low to beg God to crush his son instead of you because you just don't see there's that great of need for it. And that thought leads perfectly to the third thing that we must agree with in order to be in total agreement with God about our sinfulness. Not only must we agree that our sinfulness separates us from God, not only must we agree that our sinfulness necessitates a substitute, but then thirdly, we have to agree that our sinfulness requires our confession. We must agree that our sinfulness requires our confession. John talks about confession three different times in these verses. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we don't confess it, we deceive ourselves. Verse 9, if we confess our sins... And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar if we don't confess. 
And if we put these things together, we come to the following conclusion. We must conclude that the God of light has determined that we all fall short of his perfect standard and as such we are all sinful. And that the only way to have his forgiveness is by confessing that that is the case. We show we agree by confessing. We must agree that what God has determined to be true of us concerning our sinfulness is indeed true. And if we do not agree with this, then we cannot say that we walk in the light. And at this point, I think it's important to see what John is saying about confessing sin. Because over the years, there have been some really bad ideas. I mean, some really bad ideas about confession. There have been some ritualists who believe that you have to make your confessions to God in a certain way, with certain words, or else he won't hear you. There have been some who have said that if you forget to confess a sin, that it won't actually be covered. You'll have to pay for it somehow later, if you don't remember it. There have been some who have said that confessions aren't actually legit unless they come attached with a certain prescribed act of penance. The act of penance demonstrates you actually meant your confession. And then on the opposite side of that, there have been some who have said that you can just flippantly say a quick, oh, forgive me, and then you just move on in life as if nothing ever happened. So where's the balance? What actually does Christian confession look like? If we know God has forgiven our sins, then why do we need to confess them? And I think that the topic of confession of sin is so important that I'm going to take our time next week to cover it. The idea of Christian confession. So when we come back next time, I'll go into more detail on the question of, of confession and the, and the Christian. But for today, I hope you can walk away from here with a sense of assurance that you indeed are walking in the light, if indeed you do. That you agree with God about your sinfulness. You agree that your sinfulness has separated you from him. You agree that your sinfulness necessitates a substitute, and the only substitute is Christ. And that you agree that your sinfulness requires that you confess. Only if you agree with those points can you say indeed that you are walking in the light. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you for the clarity of your word, and I thank you that your people sitting here today are able to have a sense of assurance that we walk in the light because we agree with you. We agree that we're sinful to an extent far greater than we can even fathom, and that we alone as individuals are responsible for our own separation from you, and that that separation is eternal, it's vast, we could never figure out a way to overcome it. But we thank you, Lord, that there is a way to overcome it in the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has taken the penalty that we deserve for our sin. We put all of our hope in him. And in putting our hope in him, we recognize that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And then, Father, help us, teach us to be a confessing people that we will be those who rightly confess our sin to you and to one another. And we pray for your help as we consider that topic next week. May we go from this place with assurance or 
with clarity to realize that we walk in darkness and we must turn and repent or else we would perish. And we pray this for your honor and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.